and welcome to Hell on Earth, Appendix 3, Money. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Matt Chrisman. So throughout this series, uh, we've been discussing how the social and political developments at this time were mutually reinforced by parallel developments in financial practices and technology. Well, today we are going to delve deep into exactly what those economic developments were, how they evolved, and how they impacted this historical era and beyond. And to help us, we are happy to welcome Patrick Wyman to the show. Patrick is the host of the wonderful Tides of History podcast, as well as author of the book, The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World, which touches on many of these topics. Patrick, welcome to Hell on Earth. Thank you so much for joining me. This is surprisingly pleasant for hell. <laughs> yes. Uh, pleasant we hell keep... indeed. Shout out John yes. Dolan. <laughs> so let's start with some characters we referenced on the main show, uh, but didn't have as much time to get into the details of as we would have liked. The Fugger banking family. Um, I was absolutely delighted to read that one of the earliest historical records of the Fugger family was a terse census note about one of the patriarchs showing up in Augsburg that simply stated in an older Germanic spelling, fucker has arrived. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Patrick, can you talk us through the arrival of these fuckers on the European scene and uh, how they built their early financial empires and influence? Yeah, so the, the, the fuckers are fascinating because... It's possible to simultaneously overrate them and underrate them in terms of their their overall historical importance. Um, it's possible to underrate them in the sense that if you learn a story about the early modern period and the, the kind of tr big transitions that we see in this period, you can kind of you can you can focus on kings and you can focus on generals and nobles and all of those people, and you can miss the fact that it is fugger money that drives so many of these big processes that happen in this period. So many of the big kind of headline grabbing things. Um, but it's also possible to overrate them if you are into the story of finance in this period and you're interested in how the, all of those developments play through. The Fuggers are a big name, but they're actually pretty typical in a lot of ways. They are far from alone in the kind of trajectory that the family takes in terms of the kinds of activities that they're engaged in, um, even their overall aims. And um, I mean, this is something I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on over the course of the day. But like what they really want is not really to be financiers. It's to be nobles and <laughs> to uh, and, and a lot of them you can kind of see is the, the generations of the family go on. They're not really all that interested in doing finance and making loans and things like that. They want to like collect libraries and they want to be generals and they want to do all the other things that like high status people are supposed to do in the 16th and 17th centuries. Um, but in terms of their rise, where they come from, the earliest fuggers that we see are weavers. Um, and they rise through the ranks of the craft organizations, the craft guilds in the city of Augsburg. Um, and they, this is a time of a big boom in the cloth industry in South Germany. Um, there's, it's generating a lot of profit. These pretty clever uh, cloth makers are also getting into cloth distribution. And as they get into cloth distribution, they start to have excess, uh, they start to have excess capital. So they start loaning the excess capital um, and then they start collecting capital from their friends and relatives in the city of of Augsburg. And this is a story that's repeated all over the place in South Germany. Augsburg is a particularly well-documented example of it, but it also happens in both Frankfurt's. It happens in Nuremberg. Um, it happens all over the place here. So there is really, it's not so much Augsburg. It's not so much the Fuggers as it is South Germany as a whole. And all of these cloth merchants who start to branch out from cloth into um, related financial activities. 
Uh, so maybe best to think of them as kind of a, a first among many or, or just the most mm-hmm. exemplar among many. But also this is funny because, you know, in our one of our first appendices and at the very end of our series, you know, we've been talking about England as a, a, a phrase that I've loved, Matt, saying a petrostate for wool. And you... Uh, <laughs> But you kind of see that the same that that you know wool cloth textiles is kind of you know in its own way the the oil industry of early uh, pre modern Europe you know it, it it very much is because um it, it's perishable right it's a perishable mm-hmm. good it, it's it is something that you can produce in large quantities it's something that can it, where you've got a raw material and you've got various processes of improvement to the raw material that happen before you get to a consumer you've got demand spread all over the continent you've got concentrated centers of both production and demand in these growing cities so i mean when you think about in in the same way as the industrial revolution is driven by textiles um it all over the world not just not just in western europe and the united states um this this absolutely the same is true of the financial system in the 15th and 16th and 17th centuries uh so they're they move up from this you know textile market through the guilds to becoming transitioning textiles into purely financial products uh so once they start amassing this massive wealth and, and maybe you can get into some of the details of how you might think of how massive their wealth might be, uh, then how did they start exerting influence with this money? And maybe we could start discussing their relationship between some of the actual noble houses and sovereign families. Yeah. So the Fuggers make a, a conscious decision in, in the late 15th century to get into state finance. And the only reason that they did this, because these these guys were pretty smart, um, they knew that if you wanted to be involved in state finance in the late Middle Ages, very beginning of the early modern period, there was a good chance you weren't going to get your money back, right? Like princes, kings, nobles were not good uh, were not good debtors to have. Um, they routinely defaulted. Uh, they did not take particularly good care of their finances. They didn't really pay attention to it. They often did not have competent people to handle their finances. Um, so whenever you do this, you're, whenever you got involved in this business, there was a really good chance you were going to lose your shirt. Um, the reason that the Fuggers got into it is because at the same time as they started, as they were considering making these loans to Maximilian, um, the, the emperor, uh, big deal guy. Um, it was, there was an opening of the mining industry in, uh, in the Habsburg lands. And they, they realized that, okay, we can make these loans because we have literal hard, we we have literal silver to serve as security on these loans. Um, they, they didn't have to worry about Maximilian defaulting because they knew that there was an actual liquid product that was coming out that they could, that that was just money. They were just getting money. The math worked out. It was really simple. It was really straightforward. And as they got deeper and deeper into bed with the Habsburgs, the amounts of money just got bigger and bigger. And then they turned that into copper mining. Um, so by the 1520s, um, by the end of Jakob Fugger's life, Jakob Fugger the Rich, um, they had effectively cornered 80% of the European copper market. Uh, so, uh, at, depending on the metric that you, that you use, Jakob, Fugger, Jakob Fugger's assets comprised 2 to 4% of the entire GDP of um, Western and Central Europe at that mm-hmm. point in time. So, I mean, just an immense amount of wealth. And so when they talk about Jakob Fugger being the richest man who ever lived, that's the metric that, that people are using. And so they become inextricably linked with the Habsburg project in, um, 
specifically in the in the east. Could you talk a little bit about where that where that would stand? Uh, you know, around the time of our story in the the late fifteenth uh, century, early sixteenth century. Uh, maybe specifically talking about uh, one of the events that we talk about as a big precursor to the Thirty Years' War, the Italian Wars. Yeah. So the the Fuggers, um first first Jacob and then his nephew Anton and then his nephew Anton, um, the only one of the family that uh, that Jacob trusted to to continue the family business. He was not. A, these were not like pleasant guys, especially Jacob. Um, <laughs> these, they were they were not like nice people. They were they were very much like grind set. Yes. Uh, dudes like especially Jakob um, and there's a there's a great story that a uh, uh, a guy who wrote a costume book um, like an, a guy who was an accountant but he was also very into costumes and fashion and he wrote this big illustrated costume book like um, he he he, I, I, he was like a fashion gay I think in the in the early 16th century uh, <laughs> he was but, a, so, a dandy fop yeah, and, but he tells this story about how he had gone all over Western Europe to learn accounting practices, and he'd been to Venice, and I think he'd been to Florence too. And uh, when he goes to try to work for Jakob Fugger, Fugger grills him so hard that the guy's like, I could have just stayed in Augsburg and learned from him. Like, I didn't have to go all over the place. Like, I could have just sat here and been like berated by Jakob Fugger and, and not had to travel at all. Uh, so they're not pleasant guys, but as uh, but basically they got deeper and deeper and deeper into the Habsburg business. The culmination of this is when Jakob Fugger essentially serves as the main uh, as the main creditor to um, Charles V when he buys the imperial crown in uh, upon his grandfather's death in, in 1519. Um, Fugger provides the vast majority of the financing um, for that. It's an enormous expenditure. It runs into the hundreds of thousands. I mean, I think it, I, I think almost a million florins, um, which is just an, a, an absurd amount of money. The only reason that the Fuggers do this is because of um, New World Silver, right? So they are, uh, the, the Fuggers realize that the, they've been using Maximilian's um, silver mines in the Tyrol, and they've been using the political connections from that to build up their copper business. Um, the, the only thing that's going to serve as security for these other loans, these massive loans, are the silver resources that are now pouring into Spain. So basically, uh, they, are, they are the court bankers to the Habsburgs, but that both undersells and oversells what they're doing. Um, it oversells it to the extent that the Habsburgs had many court bankers because they were borrowing from literally anybody that would lend them money. Um, but the, it, it undersells them to the extent that they are now inextricably, inextricably linked to the entire financial edifice that is being built up in early modern Europe. So this is, again, the kind of underrated, overrated part of it. They're not the only ones who are doing it. They're just the biggest and they've left us really good records and we can kind of see what they were up to. Nice. You, you talk about how as soon as they got this banking fortune, they kind of wanted to get away from it because, you know, that was not how uh, a noble uh, men of people of quality uh, went about their lives. And by the Thirty Years' War, Otto Fugger is actually a general uh, in imperial service. Uh, I think that's and how did he do? I don't. Know. <laughs> he he was uh, he was a pretty average dude, and I think this is the sign to me. I, as when I saw when I saw you guys put Otto on the outline, and I was looking I was looking at him and thinking about him. Like what stands out at this point, and it shows just how much the Fuggers evolved, is how utterly fucking bog standard um, Otto Otto, uh, Otto Fugger is. Where like there's nothing extraordinary about him at all. He's just your standard like not particularly gifted middling nobleman 
who, because of his family connections and family money and all the people that he knows, is just a general. And he just does that for a couple of decades. And he doesn't have any major successes. He doesn't have any major failures. He just kind of fucks along in the 30 years war as like one of these like rich dudes who raises soldiers. Um, that's just that, like that. The, the, the fact that the Fuggers had gotten to the point where they could have a scion of the family be that kind of standard unremarkable a nobleman with that kind of career path is is really emblematic of how the family had risen by the by that part of the 17th century. So then let's talk about their decline because obviously you know their the Fugger name eventually leaves the heights of exceptional family wealth in in our history. So um what 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 is the eventual fate of the Fuggers? I mean so Part of it is that they are way too involved in both branches of Habsburg state finance. Yeah. And again, both of them, both branches of the family were were just terrible people to have owe you money. Um, the Philip II of Spain was absolutely the worst. He defaulted on his debts numerous times. The 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 Fuggers, even by the 1570s, uh, were were having to write off enormous sums of money that that Philip owed them. And this is part of what happens to Spain in the second half of the 17th century is it, it's it's just kind of exhausted in a whole bunch of different ways. It is exhausted financially in the sense that the the Castilian wealth has been taxed so heavily to pay for all of these wars and to serve as kind of the the um, the security for all of these loans that generations of rulers have been taking out to fight these these constant wars. Um, they've tapped completely tapped the New World silver supplies. Those those funds are earmarked the second that they get off the boat. Right. Those that money has already been spent several times over. We actually. we've mentioned in the main series that that often the money just doesn't even touch Spain. It just goes no. directly to further European creditors. Yeah, and this and, and the the really amazing thing about that. And again, I think it's really emblematic of the period is that that was the case pretty much from the beginning. The The first batch of Inca treasure that shows up um, is had already been spent for Charles V's Tunis expedition in 1535. The, the Aztec treasure that came in, this first big batch, not like the constant shipments that are coming out of, you know, brutal enslavement, mines, all that good stuff. The, the big windfalls of cash had already been spent the moment that it arrived. Um, that was true in 1520, 1521, 1522. It was true in 1533, 1534, 1535. I, it, it's just extraordinary how good they were at spending money and how bad they were at paying it back. Like it was, if, if there was a Habsburg family trait, um, that was it. They were all really good at spending money. Just the basic mechanisms that we should imagine these guys as banking lenders. So they're, you know, they're basically forwarding, uh, money for state projects for the Habsburgs with a small amount of interest, with the expectation that silver that the Habsburgs are raising is going to come back and pay the principal plus extra. The, just what we should imagine about the basic principles of banking is how they are operating. Yeah, basically. But there there are so silver is best. Silver is the best security. But also you there there are increasingly sophisticated ways of getting paid back over the course of the 16th and into the 17th centuries. Um one of the reasons why the 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 why the Fuggers were happy to lend the Spanish branch money it was because uh, the the Spanish crown had actually been the first to develop um kind of ongoing methods of debt repayment to kind of carry a floating state debt that's getting paid out of, of tax revenues in, in annuities um, to the people who hold these shares in the state debt. Um, 
And so the Fuggers held a whole bunch of these shares of the state debt. Um, the problem was they could also be what what had been given by the crown could also be taken away. So, um, you know, it, it, there's there's this really fascinating mixture of things where some of this is kind of virtual in the sense that we're used to understanding state debt and state finance as it's all kind of, you know, you're pushing numbers around a paper. But at the end of the day, in the 16th century, there is still an expectation that there is a physical thing that you're going to get out of it. So it's one of the things that makes this period really interesting from a finance perspective is that you have an uneasy mixture of the the pushing of numbers around ledgers, but at the same time, the need to, at some point, um, get paid back physical money for things. And when get, that get a chest of silver coins, yeah, an, your actual, house. an actual chest of silver coins. And, and, and so much of it is part of so much of what drives this period is the fact that financiers and a very few number of like a, a very small number of um, smart state servants, and there's some overlap between those categories, um, were increasingly comfortable with the pushing of money around ledgers. And um, th- and so it really speeds up the velocity of money. It's really part of what drives the transformation of the of the economy in Western Europe at this point in time is like that people were just so much more comfortable doing that, which meant more transactions, which meant more theoretical money in circulation, which meant that you could do more stuff um, and more stuff generally meaning in this period, just more war. Well, let's get on to uh, some of those new techniques. But before we move off the fuckers, finally, uh, I do kind of want to talk about it's a bit of a rata, but about how they were embedded in society itself. And I find it interesting that one of the first public housing projects uh, in the Western world is explicitly a fugger family project, the the Fuggerai, a uh, public housing project, I think, dating back from the 16th century or early 17th century. So can you talk about kind of their... You know, we talked about the relationship with these sovereigns. What, what's the relationship with the society around them? Yeah, it, it's one of, again, one of the things that I, I think is kind of hard for us to imagine about a family that's that rich, it, it, where there is not a good modern parallel for it, is just how much the the Fuggers' activities were directed at their peers and neighbors in the city of Augsburg. So the Fuggerai mm-hmm. is a really good example of this. It, it, it is a public housing project. You can still live there today. It's still running. It's still a, it, it is still an ongoing viable concern. I think you have to be Catholic to live there. I think that's still <laughs> sure. true. Um, but yeah, it's still yeah, a, a beautiful it, little college cottage in Augsburg is uh, worth a mass. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely true. Uh, the, it, but yeah, a lot of what they did was really directed at getting people to think well of them in the community. So it's still this kind of like late medieval um, urban burger mindset that the that the Fuggers never really outgrow. A lot of what they do is like trying to is trying to build prestige among this interlinked group of Augsburg merchant families. Um, they're not doing display for, you know, for all of the German speaking lands. They're not trying to become known uh, broadly across Western Europe. It's that they're Augsburg people and they want to be known in Augsburg and they want to build things in Augsburg. And it's important to them to be thought of well in Augsburg. Um, it's it's really surprisingly provincial considering the scope of their activities. Well, you know, you 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 want you're walking down the street, you don't want somebody to chuck a, a cow pie at your head, you know? <laughs> exactly. But it's which is again one of the charming things about the late Middle Ages and the early modern period is that was still a thing that people did, right? Like if they thought that you were being greedy or an asshole, like you could just toss dung at somebody 
as they were walking down the street. You might get Tat, trouble for it. Tots music. <laughs> Tat music. This is a this is a thing. If you were an asshole in the mm-hmm. community, people would show up outside your house in the middle of the night, bang pots and pans, and throw rocks mm-hmm. at your house and and uh, wail like cats. Yeah, there there are all of these mechanisms of social leveling. Um, that that still existed again in this period that that makes it a kind of an interesting transitional time where like the, the these medieval like or ideas that were really prevalent in the Middle Ages about fairness and the distribution of wealth are not entirely gone yet right mm. and so it's still really important for people like the Fuggers to justify themselves to their neighbors as as being like virtuous and righteous um, in the way that they've come about their wealth and the way that they use their wealth. Great. So now let's move on from the Fuggers. Uh, although we must imagine all you know their actions running in the background of everything that we're talking about here, or the foreground, depending on if we're overrating or underrating them. So we, you touched on how like the, the mechanisms and tools that we are developing during this time. So I'm wondering if we could talk about some of those actual innovations, and then through them, how finance is actually concentrating during this period. So uh, you know. We kind of uh, tossed off that we, we found, find uh, double-entry bookkeeping to be something so simple that it's kind of remarkable that it took this long to develop. But maybe you could go into, you know, kind of what, what people are coming to be accustomed to in terms of things like double-entry bookkeeping, bills of credit and exchange, stuff like that. Debt. Yes. Yeah. So the what we see in this period is not necessarily the development of entirely new instruments, though the Joint Stock Corporation is is one of those. Insurance is, is another. But it's mostly that these things had already existed and they, they become more prevalent and widespread across Western Europe, where before they had really been concentrated um, in the big commercial cities in Italy and to a lesser extent in southern Germany. Um, by the end of the 16th century, they're just everywhere. Right. So these what what are considered good accounting practices, double entry bookkeeping being the prime example of that, um, that that's just everywhere. Instead of it being something that you've got to go to Venice to learn, like Jakob Fugger went to Venice to learn double entry bookkeeping um, and, and to learn how to like all of these advanced techniques for, for how to run a business. You don't have to go to you don't have to go to Venice for that anymore. Um, by the end of the 16th century, you can learn that in, you know, a market town in any pretty much anywhere in Western Europe. Um, those the, the these these sophisticated ways of doing things are just are just omnipresent. They are they have become the norm. Um Interesting side note, though, you can run a pretty you can run a pretty complex business without double entry bookkeeping. And there are some really big commercial concerns well into the 16th century where their bookkeeping is what we would consider to be kind of a mess. Mm -hmm. Um, They but but it worked for them. The accounting methods that they use, they, they would use something more like kind of a running tally. Um, of of money coming in and money going out. And, and that worked for them. It worked for them up to a point. Um, and the shift to a double entry system, it has as much to do with a kind of a rationalization of financial activity and, and attitudes toward it as it does the actual effectiveness of the technique. So it becomes that this is how we do business. This is how a, an organized, rational person does business, not just that it's objectively better. Is, is there a part of that that is standardizing across the continent? So it's like once these practices become more widespread, it's then, you know, your your business in, in Milan can communicate with a, a Flemish business in a way that is comprehensible to both. Yeah, it, it works for everybody. It becomes kind of a European standard. And, and the it, it helps 
And to, to, to your point about kind of the, the mechanisms and the actual tools of finance, uh, the, it, it helps when everybody is doing it, when everybody is keeping their books the same way because it facilitates transfers and business between and business between them. So a lot of what you end up seeing, and again, this was a tool that had existed in the Middle Ages, is just book transfers, right? So where no actual amount of money ever changes hands. It's a purely notional transfer from one account to another. If you both, if you both have funds in a bank or you have both um, deposited money with the Fuggers in Antwerp, right? Um, like no actual money ever needs to change hands. Nobody ever needs to see silver or gold coin or bullion or, or any, anything physical at all. It's just you move money from one account to the other within the book. Double entry bookkeeping makes that a lot easier to do at scale. And I assume that all going on with this whole process is in addition to just building the uh, technologies of bookkeeping and, and debt uh, management and stuff like that, you're also kind of building a social understanding that these are things that can be done and that there is uh, a level of social trust, at least among the people in this class, that needs to kind of change in the mindset to make this kind of high-level financial work possible. Yeah, it, it, to some extent, that's already there. There, it, when when you look at the way that even medieval peasants handled things among themselves, there was often not a lot of actual coin going around. So they end up with these pretty sophisticated understandings of credit, and everybody kind of owes everybody money, and that's okay. It all works out. But there's definitely a rationalization of it. There's definitely it, all of these things are made more explicit. So instead of it being kind of a customary understanding of you owe me money, I owe this person money. Um, so you guys can just owe each other money and our debt is wiped clean. That kind of thing, the kind of basic understanding of uh, this kind of basic running tally of, of social debt that, that you see even in small communities, it becomes more rationalized. It becomes more written down. It, it's more likely to make its way into an actual account book instead of it just being something that, well, I, we, we all know who owes everybody money. So the attitude is there, but we see a much more explicit kind of infrastructure getting built up for it. And that increases the coercive power yes. of debt mm -hmm. to yes. actually like, have social control rather than it being yes, a, a, a organic element of like, a flow between people. It, it uh, facilitates the uh, importation of a hierarchy and the imposition of hierarchy. Yes, that is, that's absolutely the case. And it, it's one of the ways in which you can see hierarchies um, becoming firmer in this period is whose debts count, um, who, who, has to, who has to pay their debts. Well, poor people have to pay their debts um, or they get in trouble. Um, rich people can often just write off their debts. And there's there's often not even an expectation that the debt will be paid back. If you're um, that that being able to default on your debt um, and have that be OK is a sign of your social status. Right. Like the, you know, kings don't always pay their debts back. And of course, they're consequences for that. But uh, and nobles can often write off their debts. It's part of what a noble is supposed to do is, you know, take some bad loans. Like that's that's <laughs> that's part of the that, that's part of the job description. Right. Um, the, and and even for it, you know, the people for whom um, indebtedness and bankruptcy was really bad are uh, like if it causes a commercial failure of your of your business, that is a concomitant loss of your social status for like mm -hmm. a big merchant company. Right. Um, and that's going to bring you a little disgrace, but even then it doesn't like last that long. <laughs> like you can still get your kids jobs with the other big merchant houses because your, maybe your individual social capital is gone, but that's not necessarily true of the entire family. Send your kids out with an uncle who hasn't gone bankrupt and you're fine. And like the same names will pop up two generations down the road. <laughs> like the family's still there. It's all right. Matt, you 
made sure when we were planning this out that I wrote down insurance. You want to ask a question about the development of that? Yeah. So this is an actual like innovation of the era, and it's incredibly mm-hmm. important for facilitating uh, uh, risky ventures, yes. uh, which you know is key to this whole thing. How how do we see insurance? Uh, uh, develop as a tool for finance at this period. Okay, so again, insurance is something that that it, it is a new innovation, but it has existed before. So there's some evidence for um, insurance in uh, the Roman period that there are that there's a little bit of evidence for it there. Um, it's a, it shows up at a few places in the Middle Ages, especially in uh, especially in the big Italian trading cities. Like there's there's some uh, there's some insurance in Venice, for example. Um, but but it really becomes a big deal in this period, and it becomes a big deal because the scale is so much bigger, right? The these ventures are so much bigger, the, and the markets for insurance become much tighter. Um, that's that's one of the big developments. Is it's not just that insur- the insurance becomes more widespread; it's that the people who are who are writing these policies um, are are taking much tighter margins on them and are doing much more uh, much more kind of intensive calculations to see wh- what the risk is. And so, w- when we talk about I- insurance, a lot of it has to do with kind of the attitudes and and the and the precision of the techniques. So even if it's a thing that's existed before and you can see precedence for it, it just becomes so much so so much of a bigger deal that it allows I think exactly what you said, Matt. It allows to it allows for these risky ventures to be uh, to be capitalized. It, there's there's a greater assurance that if you put your money into it, you're not going to entirely lose your shirt. You're going to lose something. You might lose your life, <laughs> but, <laughs> but then um, what do you care afterwards? Yeah, yeah. Then it's then it's your family's problem to deal yeah. with. Well, you you, uh, you mentioned how you know like a lot of these things. Uh, you see its first uh, emergence in the northern Italian city states. That's where. Like the, the the real first uh, mo- modern precursors of uh, capital markets are built, but then over the centuries we see this migration of capital sort of up the Rhine and then into the Low Countries and finally into England. Uh, w- why exactly does this occur, and what uh, is different? What what develops along this progress, basically, as you go from the northern Italy to the German cities of the Rhine to the Low Countries in England? So, so it in in outline, that's exactly what happens, right? But I think it's important to see it as a kind of a multi, uh, as as a more of a back and forth process mm-hmm. that that there's constant movement between these places, even as the general migration is happening, right. right? Even as it is, even as the 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 weight of financial gravity is moving from Italy to southern Germany, then up the Rhine into the Low Countries and across England, that that there's still like these big and increasingly dense networks of contacts that connect all of these places. So you have that you have a lot of Germans who are in Italy and they're picking up the techniques and they're, and, and they're building commercial connections and they're investing money in Italy, in Northern Italian city states. Like the, the arms business is a great example of this <clears throat> in the late middle ages and early modern and, and in the, the 16th century where it's basically Augsburg and Milan. Right. And so you have shipments of ore and shipments of weapons that are moving back and forth between the two places. Um, but so is the money to pay for them. Right. So so it's there's a physical transfer of goods and knowledge and people going back and forth between these places that drives the process. The, when the low countries become the center of financial gravity, a lot of that is because there are physically South German merchant houses that are resident in Antwerp. 
mm-hmm. right? So, so there's, there's a physical movement of people that goes along with this. It's part of the international world of finances. You know, there are Italians in Antwerp and there are Flemings in Venice and there are South Germans in both places. And eventually that becomes true in, in, in Amsterdam as well. So there is a, a, a lot of these banking families and merchant families are tied together. They're, they're married into one another. So even if they are resident in Antwerp, they've got a branch of the family in Augsburg. There's a branch of the family in Hamburg. There's a branch of the family in London. Um, and individuals can go between these different branches of the families. And so th- there's a constant transfer of money of knowledge of people between these various financial centers, even as the center of financial gravity is shifting. As far as what drives it, it, it in the case of Antwerp, it's it's pretty clear. It's because the Portuguese crown um, starts selling all its spices through there. So instead of having to sell all its spices through through Lisbon and having to bring everybody there, eventually they just ship it all to Antwerp. And at least for a little, they eventually move it back. But for a while, Antwerp just becomes the place where, well, the South Germans are going to go there because they want to distribute spices. The Italians are going to go there because they want to distribute spices. And if everybody's physically there, then you might as well be trading. You might as well be doing the money market as well. Uh, And, you know, just to be very specific on that, would you say that that kind of internationalization of finance through these networks of financialized families is a, is a specific innovation of this, you know, 200 year time, time period or, or, or it, something that becomes exponential during, during it this becomes time. exponential. There's, and there's just so much more money flowing through these networks that even if the networks had existed before, because you can eat the, it's one of the things that makes, for example, Florence stand out in the Middle Ages is just that there were so many freaking Florentines and they were just everywhere, right? So you could always find somebody that you knew to do business with. You could, like, somebody had a cousin in Genoa. Somebody had a cousin in Seville. Somebody had a cousin in London. Um, you know, oh, my my brother's in Augsburg, right? Like, there's always just somebody to do business with. That becomes the case for everybody. In the early modern period, you can you can be, you know, a merchant family from Lubeck and you've got a brother in law in Calais who's working in the wool trade and you're you know, you're from Augsburg, but you've got but but cousin Johan is working in the German steel yard in London. Right. So it just becomes dramatically denser. And we can much more easily see the, these connections between places because of the dramatic expansion of how much text we have and how much evidence we have. So it's possible that these that there were denser networks than we realize in the Middle Ages, and we just can't see them um, for lack of evidence. But I think I really think it is a reflection of a genuine shift in the amount of uh, in the amount of internationalization. So then let's move on to uh, one of the main things that people were spending their money on at this time, which is war. Uh, certainly, you know, kind of the the gooey center of what we're discussing within this city, the 30 Years War, but also or the city, the series, the 30 Years War. But, you know, this is a time of intermittent and continuous warfare throughout uh, the entire period. So, you know, maybe we, you could talk a bit about like the actual mechanisms of funding wars, how people were trying to get returns at this time uh, and how kind of military and economic innovations were mutually reinforcing each other uh, throughout this period. Yeah. So there, there are two kind of basic principles that we have to start with to understand it. And the first of all is that war is a business. Um and war is a war is a business for the entirety of this period. It is full of people who are actively 
trying to make a profit from the various uh, from various aspects of warfare. Right. So that's number one. Number two is kind of an anecdote, but but I think it's pretty revealing. It's that the major financial centers of this period were also the major centers of arms manufacturing. So Augsburg, um, Venice, and eventually Amsterdam were all the biggest uh, the biggest centers of arms manufacture and distribution, along with being biggest financial centers. Um, so that's a really clear. And, and when you look, and then when you look down the list at the secondary centers of arms manufacture and distribution, they are also major financial centers. Nuremberg, Hamburg, um, Genoa. Oh yeah, Genoa is the is, is the biggest one. Genoa is the easiest example because that's where you know if you if you want a galley in the Mediterranean in 1570 um, and you want to fund the construction of a galley, yeah, you go to Genoa. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's, it, it's just, these are, it, these are enormous industries in terms of their scale. I mean, it's, and it's an easy parallel with the 21st century, right? You, you think about the scale of, you know, the defense industry as a thing and the amount of money that goes into it. That is absolutely true in the early modern period as well. Um, so at the highest level, all of this stuff costs money. You want to buy, you need a thousand muskets. A thousand muskets cost a lot of money. You need to have somebody who's going to, um, who's going to, at a basic level, um, fund that, right? Like, because everybody's got to get paid before the muskets get delivered, right? That's the, the so there have to be me- these kind of mechanisms of quotidian day-to-day finance and credit to go along with the arms industry. It's the same thing that exists in book publishing, for that matter, it's the exact same thing where you need to pay for materials up front. You need to pay the workers. You need to do all of this stuff. And so you have these little cycles of credit that are much more easily met in a place where there are in a big financial center, in a place where there's a lot of money already going around. So there's a merchant who can make the loan to the to the to the factory owner um, who can who can advance the money to the laborers. So there's there's these little Think about these little like interlocking spirals of credit in all of these places. So <clears throat> that's what we see in finance and arms. But the same little spirals of credit are also what drive the actual the actual industry of military recruitment and financing. So in the Thirty Years' War, that's when this system kind of reaches its culmination. It is it is a an almost entirely privatized system of providing military manpower, equipping them. And then paying them as as the as campaigns go on. So there are varying levels of state control of the process. Um, but even in the cases where you have what we think of as a royal army, the mechanisms by which the forces are actually raised are still entirely privatized. And where are the soldiers drawn from? They're they're drawn from a, an international market in military manpower, a mercenary market. So even the Swedes who you know are, are we think of as having kind of the most national army in this period they the first of all that was because Sweden was poor as hell and so you could actually convince Swedes to go into the army to be paid a lower wage than was the norm in the international mercenary market you could conscript them pay them that wage and they wouldn't immediately rebel but <laughs> as the as the Swedes go on as the Swedes actually are landing as Gustavus Adolphus is trying to campaign in Germany he turns to the international mercenary market too. There are almost no Swedes in the Swedish army at, at, at Leutzen or Breitenfeld or any of these battles. I think like there are maybe like 1500 Swedes in the Swedish army at Leutzen. Um, 
So that is the basic thing is you have this same pool of people. Um, they are a, a lot of them are are drawn from kind of the fringes of Europe. So it was Cox in the in the in the Balkans or what's now Croatia, Slovenia, that region. Um, Scots are incredibly common up until 1642 when they all go home to fight in the English Civil yes. War. <laughs> um, the, so you have just this massive pool of manpower. Um by the end of the Thirty Years' War, a lot of them are effectively military professionals. They've been doing this for decades. Um, the The general rule was that when you were raising a new unit, you needed about one in five troops to be experienced to to give the unit kind of a backbone. But cohesion, that, yeah, yeah, that would give it that would give it an identity. Um, but when it, the actual mechanism of this is, you have a main contractor who's being hired by the the kind of contracting state, right? So this, the Elector Palatine or the King of France or whoever, they get the contract. They are going to have to front money to their colonels. Their colonels are going to, who are the ones who are recruiting the individual units, are going to have to front money for recruitment. So again, it's these interlocking cycles of credit where everybody owes everybody money. And that's how these things work. So you can see how it so easily gets tied in with um, these financial centers and and with this kind of growing industry of finance is that they're the exact same mechanisms. They're drawing on the exact same resources. Um, you know, the same people who are being involved in arms manufacturing are also like maybe you own a factory, but you also will raise a unit. Uh, we also raise a unit of cavalry for this campaign. Um, the the really kind of stunning thing is just how pervasively commercial the mindset of of warfare is like that the that you'll often see in the scholarship these colonels referred to as shareholder colonels because they are shareholders in the in the general military enterprise they like you have these big figures like like Wallenstein and Tilly and uh you know the, the even Gustavus Adolphus you think of as like oh they're running the army no they are effectively the CEO with a very fractious board that that they report to below them who have all invested an enormous amount of their own time and money in this enterprise and they are expecting to turn a profit from it so one of the things that emerges from this uh, period, uh, the Thirty Years' War, it's adjunct the Eighty Years' War uh, in the Low Countries is the uh, explosion, uh, uh, supernova explosion of uh, the Dutch of the of the United Provinces as as the center for global capital. Uh, uh, and uh, how exactly does this happen? <laughs> Where th- this province really of the of the Greater uh, Spanish Habsburg uh, domain. Uh, is able to harness all of these trends and, and technologies and, and ways of being into this in, uh, into a massive force multiplier. So, and and the the really stunning thing is that that wasn't even the rich part of of the Netherlands. Yeah. The, the part that eventually becomes the, the, like Amsterdam, you know, the center of of global finance for for quite some time. That wasn't even the part that people wanted. The part that people wanted was Antwerp and Bruges. Um, Bruges in the Middle Ages was the financial center of of um, Northern Europe um, that shifts to Antwerp in the 16th century. Um, one of the reasons why it shifts to Amsterdam is because, especially after the sack of Antwerp, the 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 really brutal sack of of Antwerp by Spanish soldiers in the Eighty Years' War, soldiers who hadn't been paid, by the way, mm-hmm. um, really again a common theme in this period. Uh, people physically left Antwerp and went to Amsterdam. So they went, they took their money, they took their knowledge, their kind of institutional know-how of how finance is supposed to work, and they just physically moved to Amsterdam. Um, so that's part of it. 
But the, the biggest pieces, I, I think the, so first of all, there's a good agricultural base. Um, we don't really think of the low countries as being like a super, uh, being super fertile, but the countryside was incredibly productive by early modern standards. And the, the soil was rich enough and the farmers were rich enough that they could have exceptionally high levels of labor input. Um, into into the land that they had. So and they could do and they could capital and they could put in big capital investments in dikes, windmills, things like this. The, you know, like what we think of as kind of being the um, the the stereotypical aspects of the Dutch countryside. Those were actually capital investments to make the land more profitable. So there's there's an agricultural base close to home that can feed a substantial proportion of the people um, that allows for high levels of urbanization. So the low countries in general are already the most urbanized part of Europe. Um, it's, it's the low countries in Northern Europe or in Northern Italy are, are the two and the low countries start to outstrip them by the six, start to outstrip Northern Italy by the 16th century. So you have a concentration of people. Um, you have a, you have a, a and a, you have a concentration of money. This is a, a hub of merchant activity. It has been for a long time. All of the, the leading European, uh, banking houses and merchant families have branches there, uh, it's, it's close to the centers of wool production in England. So you've got a bit of an industrial base. You have enough of all of these things, plus a long tradition of seafaring that when you get into the late 16th century and you have a incredibly high capital demands for these high risk, but high profit ventures like spice, like spice trading, the pieces are in place to allow you to do that. So the, the Dutch what stands out about the Dutch East India Company in relation to previous ventures is that they went for the whole thing from the beginning, mm -hmm. right? Like they, they were not kind of like sneaking in one ship at a time. They decided they were going to go out and they were going to literally corner the market on, on spices. And so, I mean, sh the sheer balls of that venture, first of all, like the, the, the amount of kind of strategic vision that it takes to think that that's what you're going to do and knowing the kind of capital requirements necessary to do that, they were able to raise the money. And then it becomes a sell. Then it becomes a kind of a self-sustaining thing, right? That as the money starts to roll in from these ventures, I mean, because and not all of the Dutch ventures were successful, right? Like there are plenty of of joint stock ventures that that go belly up, but there's enough capital. There are enough people who are willing to invest. So not just big investors. There is a level of comfort with financialization and investment and kind of how these mechanisms going down through Dutch society that that mobilizes an, a massive amount of capital. It makes a massive amount of capital available. It's, it's, it's a prosperous society, not just among the elite, but down into kind of the middling people. And even these farmers out in the countryside, right? Like they have capital, like, and it is a normal thing to invest your capital in these ventures. This was also true of Venice. In, in the Middle Ages, right? Like you could you could take your money if you were, let's say, a a, a shipwright in Venice in, in 1450 and say, you know what? I think this, this voyage is a good idea. I'm going to put my money into that and maybe I'll get a little return on it. That was a normal thing to do there. It was a normal thing in the Netherlands and the mechanisms through which you could uh, pool that capital become became much more sophisticated. Joint Stock Corporation, is it's brilliant in that regard. Yes. So it, it, one of the unique things then is the kind of, breadth and depth of the social embeddedness of these these new capital formations um can you maybe just like go in a little bit on what 
is unique about the Dutch East India Company and, and its mechanisms of, of creating investment strategies. And then maybe from there we can go into a little bit about like more 17th century, like how mercantilism as we understand it and monopolism in these companies works. Yeah. It, th- one of the things that really stands out about this is, is the permanence of them, right? So as opposed to previous ventures in which people were investing, say, say in Venice, like the, the Venice example I just used, that was a one-off voyage, right? And you may have an ongoing relationship with a captain or with a, with a kind of a sponsoring merchant family, uh, but that was a one-off thing. You put in your money, you get your money out. The Dutch East India Company becomes a permanent institution, and it becomes a permanent institution with a great deal of institutional knowledge that was directly tied into the Dutch state, right? There's no easy distinction between the Dutch state and the Dutch East India Company because it's the same people and they're all related. They all know each other. The state officials have their money in the East India Company and the East India Company is, the, the profits of the East India Company are rolling into the Dutch state. And so there's no easy distinction between those two things. Um, so, so again, you have a, a social embeddedness of the ideas that make it possible to pool capital in the first place, and then the political embeddedness of the of the these these big companies themselves, they become inseparable from from right. the state itself in any meaningful way. Here's where where I want to go with that is yeah. you know as we get into the later part of the 17th century, you know we we take this series up to like 1688. You see, uh, because of the embeddedness of these institutions, especially in uh, you know the Netherlands or the United Provinces, and then increasingly up into England, you know, this very interrelated working of these massive persistent companies and the state. Uh, so can we talk a bit about this, you know, idea of protectionism and monopolism as the guiding state economic principle that then allows these companies to function in the way that they do in the 17th century? That is different from the way that we understand, uh, you know, markets uh, now, but is the thing that like sets up the markets to function in perpetuity, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, f- there's a way of economic thinking in this period too, that is very zero sum, right? That if mm-hmm. we don't get it, then somebody else will. If we get it, somebody else can't get it. So so you have that kind of thing there at a, at a basic level, but there's also kind of this the sense of like, who is the state for? And the this is one of the big developments in this period, and this is true. It, it, this is true first in the first in uh, in the Netherlands, and then it's true in uh, and then it's true in England as well. Is that it's the back and forth between these groups of people? Like, who is the state for? Who is the state working for? Um, and the it, you know, in the Middle Ages, there's a sense that like usually the state is for the nobility, it's for the king, you know, it's a God granted thing, whatever. Um, maybe you've got the house of commons, but again, these are like landowning gentry. That's who the state is for. That's who is extracting value from the state. That's who is controlling the mechanisms of state in the localities. Um, when you have a state that is built around the interests of merchants, then you're going to get something a little bit different. And this is what you see in the Italian city states, right? This is why why they seem so mercantile as things is because again, the the merchant families are running the state and the state is running the it, you know, the state is involved in the in the workings of the merchant families. This becomes true but at a massively increased scale in as the 17th century goes on. So the the amounts of money that are involved it become increasingly staggering. And the reason, and I think this is especially true in naval warfare. 
um, where again, you just have it, it takes a massive capital investment to build uh, to build a, a large warship. Um, that is just it, the 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 timber, um, the technical know how, paying the workers to uh, paying the workers to build it, casting the cannon, getting everybody on board, crewing a ship with skilled sailors. Like this is a, a, like a, that's just an an enormous amount of money involved in that, and to put a whole fleet of those out is is even more staggering. So. It's not a coincidence that you see those fleets in the places that have the greatest concentration of financial capital and the greatest overlap between the state and and these 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 merchant houses, right? There are these these ongoing merchant concerns or commercial concerns um, because the two things just are, are inextricably linked. That if you the best way to support the state is for the companies to make money. The best way for the the best way for the state to support the companies is to build the fleets that make it possible to carry out a possible a, a policy of of enforcing a monopoly. Right. So um, they, they're mutually reinforcing strands where the idea of what the state is and what the state is supposed to do goes along with the the resources that the companies provide. So it becomes this kind of feedback right. loop. So I want to take that all the way to the very end of, of what our series is. But uh, first, I feel like there's one last eddy of what's going on in Europe around this time that we should touch on. Uh, Matt, do you want to talk about like the the inflation crisis and the, the financial crisis uh, going on throughout here or throughout yeah, this period? Yeah, this is the period when all this species is causing prices to just rise for everything uh, everywhere. Uh, and yeah, that has uh, different effects uh, for different levels of society. Uh, but what like what is the general uh, uh, impact of this like uh, century long inflation uh, in Europe? Lower lowered quality of life um, for for huge numbers of people. Um, living standards living standards fall for vast numbers of people across Europe in this period. Living standards fall in Castile. Castile is where like Castile is kind of the bellwether. For this, um, where where you can see that's where the inflation starts to hit first. That's where you see this kind of demographic exhaustion, where after the better part of two centuries of population growth, population starts to population starts to level off or even decline. Um, part of that is out migration to the new world, but part of it is just like decline in fertility. Life is hard. You're being taxed hard to pay for all this shit, um, and it, and and life is difficult. You throw in a little bit of a climatic shift. Um, your crop yields go down, um, and an influx of actual specie, then the prices are going to rise. Your money doesn't go as far. You buy less life is like life is worse for a lot of common people in the 17th century, even as there is a shift toward a consumer and part of, and this is tied into a shift toward a consumer society where instead of, you know, everybody kind of making their own stuff or it being distributed at a village level, you have, you know, centers of production and you're shipping shoes out and, um, you know, kind of the, the growth of a, the growth of a consumer society that's often dated to this period. Um, you, you end up with this like general drop in, in quality of life and general drop in, 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 uh, in, in standards of living for, for huge numbers of people. And it happens to differing degrees in different places. It doesn't happen in the Netherlands. It doesn't, it doesn't happen in London. Um, it doesn't happen in some of the big cities in, in Northern Italy that are still pretty prosperous, but especially in the countryside, it's tough times. It's tough. It's tough times for a lot of people. Taxes are rising. The state is increasingly involved in your life. Um, you are, your money isn't going as far and, uh, and, and also the weather is worse. So, <laughs> All right. So then to bring it all home, you know, we basically are making the argument throughout the course of this series that, you know, 
throughout this crisis, what we are kind of seeing is the birth of the very infant forms of what we can call capitalism. Uh, and I just would like to get your opinion on when when do you think this all can get wrapped together to call to be referred to as something we might understand as the the earliest forms of capitalism? And I also think that part of this is maybe the development of, in addition to this merchant class, a the very first things of what we could the very first instances of what we might see as like a laboring class or a, a working class that goes along with it. So. I uh, just want to get your take on that. Yeah, I, th- I think the Thirty Years' War, in a lot of ways, is kind of the last gasp of a lot of these 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 systems of a prior age, right? So, and okay, so let's let's use a concrete example. Let's let's use soldiers as an mm-hmm. example of this, right? So, one of the reasons why war is so endemic is because there are so many people who think war is their job among the nobility, and they're perfectly happy to invest their money as a commercial venture in doing war, right? Soldier, but soldiering itself was not like a super low status occupation for people. Um, it becomes an increasingly professionalized occupation over the course of this period for larger and larger numbers of people. So by the end of the Thirty Years' War, um, you have smaller armies than you did at the outset, um, but they are increasingly comprised of people who, whose job is to be a soldier, and they've been doing this for years, and this is who they are, and this is this is their thing. But it's not. It's not bad. They're not their pay is not they may not always get paid, but notionally their pay is relatively high compared to compared to laborers. In the aftermath of the 30 Years War, that changes. Soldiering becomes an increasingly low status occupation till by you get to the by the time you get to the middle of the 18th century and these kind of long service professional armies in in France and in, in, in the German states and Spain and England. Um, being a soldier is just one of the worst occupations you can have. <laughs> Your pay is terrible. You're subject to increasingly harsh discipline um, and constant oversight. Like when you read drill manuals from the middle of the 18th century, every single motion that you have is 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 uh is controlled is visible and controlled right yeah, and, we are entering the the era of rum sodomy and the lash yes that's a, that's exactly it and and you see that you see that among sailors too where you know being a it, it, the it's one of the reasons why you get a lot of piracy at the end of the 17th and 18th century is the kind of clash between the ethos of of being like a skilled professional worker and the and being subject to increasing amounts of discipline um, while you're doing your job, right? And so a lot of people are just, I'm going to be a pirate instead. Yeah, um, but just we'll just be a freelance navy. Yeah, that's I mean that's that's kind of what happens we'll after, the, after the war of the, Yeah, yes. after the war of Spanish succession, that's that's kind of exactly what happens. Um, every time people would get out of the navy and they'd be like, well, mm, like sailing, like making money, <laughs> don't like being whipped. Uh, so, <laughs> reasonable. Uh, it's, uh, it makes yeah, sense. not not an unreasonable set of assumptions to have. Uh, but but it, it's really a microcosm of the whole shift that you're seeing among workers at this time, right? Is that it's increasing amounts of surveillance, increasingly low wages tied into inflation. Like wages are not going up as fast as prices for everything are are, are going up. Um, and so it, the it, and, and it's an increasingly kind of hierarchical way of, of controlling labor. And military labor is labor. Um, naval labor is labor. You can see the you can see the exact same things happening there that you see in kind of n- nascent systems of uh, uh, nascent industrial formations in terms of like instead of having a putting out system, you're gathering all the labor together in one place so that you can so that you can surveil it. Right. Um, 
Yeah. So the, the same developments that are happening in in armies and in navies are happening among um, are happening among craft workers, right? Like guilds are uh, guilds are always a tool for the guild masters to extract concessions from uh, to extract concessions and set prices. Um, but they increasingly have no place at all for for lower level workers, right? So there's a, a distinction between there's an increasing distinction between the noble officer class and an army. Um, who who still think of themselves as proprietors, right? Um, and the people who are uh, and the people who are actually doing the work. That's uh, in in the Thirty Years' War. There's still these aspects of these older traditions, right? Where they, these kind of corporate traditions of of soldiering. Um, so like, like the Lansknechts in the, in the early 16th century, are a good example of this, like they are notoriously democratic, the Swiss notoriously democratic, like the Swiss would sometimes just like decide before a battle, we're not going to fight. Um, we want to get paid more. So we're going on strike until you, until you double our wages. Um, and you don't see that as much when <laughs> in the 30 years war, but there are still aspects where like being a soldier is, you know, it's an honorable profession. Um, it's still got a tinge of the knightly to it. Um, like there's, there's honor to be found there and, and your pay isn't terrible. Like, um, after the 30 years war and as armies get bigger and they're more and more under the control of the state and they're increasingly surveilled and nobles get like nobler about their shit. Um, the it, it's, it's indicative of the shift that's happening all across these economies. All right. I just have one further question that I think could, uh, elucidate a lot from, um, throughout this series for a lot of numbers we throw out, uh, Patrick, uh, what's the value of a thaler? <laughs> oh my god! Um, I should have I should have looked this up. Uh, I know it this is, is kind of a a, a, tri- a trick question, but you know, basically, we we throw around a lot of figures of like who owes what. You know, four hundred thousand dollars or three hundred thousand gold. Yeah, we kind of just we just like give people like it's it's what they use. Just you know, <laughs> it's a lot of money, but it's, you know, it's, it's it's a decent amount. It's it's yeah. a transactional amount of money. You know, if it's you not can think worth, of four hundred thousand of anything, it's it's going to be a lot. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I guess it's just like how how should we be thinking about uh, you know the the value of a how many dollar how many dollars would it take to buy a PS five? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so that's actually the 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 difficult thing about comparing amounts of money over time is the purchasing power for different things. Mm-hmm. Like different things are more or less expensive in different eras, right. right? Like in some eras, food is really expensive and clothing is cheap. In others, clothing is really expensive and food is cheap. Um, electronics are a great example of this today, right? Like electronics used to be super fucking expensive, and now you, a PS Five is. The, is half the price of what a t- of what a, a a shitty TV was thirty years ago. Like, or TVs are honestly a great example of this because you can yeah. get a really nice TV for like what, like one hundred and fifty, two hundred bucks now. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, and, and the same is true even across decades, centuries, and different regions in the early modern period. Where you, you know, so we throw the figures around, but like what a taller would buy you in one place is not necessarily what it would buy you somewhere else. So there are areas where food is really, really cheap. Like in, in East, in Eastern Europe, food is exceptionally cheap. Food in Amsterdam is expensive because so much of it has to be imported um, from the black sea uh, or, or, or not from the black sea, from the Baltic, from the peasants who are, who are, you know, being increasingly exploited in this period. So, so a taller is not worth the same thing everywhere. Um, As a general rule, uh, I actually don't remember what the conversion is for a dollar. <laughs> uh, I, th- I remember it was like one point, 
like 1.4, 1.6 golden to a florin. Oh, and okay. The florin and ducat standard was supposed to be the same. Um, but that's for the 16th century. I'm not sure what it is in the 17th. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a $400,000, no matter where you go, that's, that's going to be a lot. That's yeah, a lot of dollars. Yeah. Just, re- just remember whenever there's a hundred thousand attached to it, that's a lot of money in yeah. the, in this period. Anytime you get above well, uh, the, I remember that the one that was good was for, uh, for Columbus, the amount of money that Columbus's expedition cost was like the, the annual income of a low level provincial aristocrat in Spain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. And I actually have one more question that I might uh, ship back earlier to the, the Dutch. I, I have no idea if you have any background on this, but it was something that was interesting to me as we were trying to uh, research this, which is um, one of the the kind of oddities of you know the Dutch Golden Age that I was looking into, and I couldn't quite get a straight answer about. There seems to be some revisionism about this. Do you know much about the uh, tulip mania? Yeah. Is that just an oddity, a rumor, a bunch of people hurling insults at each other, or was that genuinely a uh, phenomenon uh, with economic impact? Okay, so this uh, scholarly opinion has swung in both directions, where for a while it was treated as one of the first examples of a genuine bubble. So you would place it in this narrative of financial bubbles that goes along from from that to like the South Sea, the the South Sea Company is another one. Isaac Newton losing all his money (laughs) on the South Sea Company. Uh, So you would you would put this in um, in a narrative of a string of um, failures of 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 capital of of increasingly capitalist um, market driven um, kind of thing. So it's, it's a bubble, right? Um, in, in recent years, my understanding is that that has shifted, that the tulip thing really got blown out of proportion. Um, I still think that it is reflective of the same impulses, even if it's not a huge deal economically. I think that the existence, the, the I think it's still a bubble and it still tells us a lot about how people were understanding the value of things, even if it's not like a huge deal for the Dutch economy as a right. whole. Like I, th- and I think that's kind of the middle ground on it is that it's, this is something that can only happen in an increasingly financialized economy where the value of the actual thing is becoming separate from right. the, it, the notional value is separate from any sort of real inherent value to the thing. But, uh, but yeah, so I think it's interesting from that perspective. It doesn't crash the Dutch economy or anything like that. The Dutch are, uh, the Dutch end up being fine. Yeah. As I was reading, about it and looking into it, I thought that the real tell about it was that there were multiple pieces of satirical art from the time, uh, you know, kind of displaying tulip traders as monkeys or people in on like a ship of fools being guided by the, the, uh, lying winds of fate. That, that to me said that at the time people were looking at this and being like, this is wild. This is wacky. Yeah. Oh, I, I do love that we're now in the post NFT age and we just have a perfect parallel for thinking about it. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and for many of us who were there, like making fun of the board ape yacht club from the very beginning, mm-hmm. um, the, the tulip thing makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right. Well, unless you have any other, uh, you know, final takeaways from what's going on in this period or anything else that you want to want to say, Patrick? No, I mean, I I think just kind of as a general thing, like the relationship between the military history often gets a bad rap for for being like, you know, nerds talking about or like like kind of weird nerds talking about battles and shit. Mm -hmm. Um, But but war and all of these very serious 
topics that we think of in terms of the kind of the long-term financial development of Western Europe and the origins of capitalism and these relationships between workers um, and, and between between workers and hierarchy. All of this stuff is just made manifestly clear when you look at war as kind of this all-pervasive phenomenon in the 16th and 17th centuries. It just becomes a really clear um, way of understanding these broader developments that are happening in society and and being the mechanism through which those developments happen. Well, that is a perfect handshake because next week we will be coming back with you, back at you with the war nerd to talk about <laughs> developments in war, the nature of war, how it was fought, and getting hopefully real, really into the actual nerdery of battles, mm-hmm. technology, arquebuses, halberds, pikes, yeah. bastion, all, uh, all of which, bastions, stuff all of like which that. does fucking rule. Just so yes, we're clear, <laughs> yes, rule of justice does not enjoy a tres italian. Yes. yes. Oh, huge So, fan. Patrick, this has been great. Thank you so much for stopping by. Uh, Tides of History, uh, wonderful show. We, lo- we love it. And, of course, uh, go check out The Verge, which, uh, you know, as I said up top, covers a little before the period we're focusing on here, but it is all the background that is necessary to uh, get into the, the period that we're talking about. So thank you so much, for Patrick, for joining us. It is an absolute pleasure chatting with you, and thank you so much. I, like, I love that you guys are doing this. This is such a cool period and an underexplored period, too. Awesome. Well, thank you.